0: thankful to be here and thankful to be with all of you. It's hard to really frame this, but it seems like it's been a week since we were all sitting here last year together, and yet it also seems like a world has passed by in that same amount of time. It's just such an odd feeling, but I can't believe we were out here just one year ago sitting out with such uh, hearts were so full. I mean, in that meeting, my wife, if she raises her hand here, if she um, asked for baptism into this body during that meeting. And uh, there's a meeting on baptism. And I'm just amazed at what God has done in such a short amount of time. And I'm thankful to share um, with you all today on this topic. I feel like it's crucial I'm going to pray and I would just ask that you all pray too, that um, God would give um, an ordering to thoughts, you know, he would collect things together in the right way so that we don't get lost and we feel the impact of this type of teaching and not just something that we understand here, but something that we feel we could live from a new place as God's people, you know. And I do want to apologize to Latin America and to Brother Eric because he asked for us to send our notes in advance, and it's like telling someone that my general route leaving Waco to Idaho is going to be this I'll probably go through the northern tip of New Mexico and then I'll come back up through and he says, "Great, I'll point out sites along the way, there's the Rockies, and there's this, you know and, and instead, as soon as he says there's the Rockies, we're in the bayous of Louisiana somehow and uh, <laughs> And, you know, that's what I really feel like happens in these notes, because you do feel like you've got something to share, but, you know, it it just kind of takes on a life of its own. So we're going to pray and ask for God's will to be done and his word to come forth. So thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in these days, Lord. Thank you for letting us be a part of it, Lord. Order our thoughts, God. Amen, Lord. Amen. Show a wisdom better than the devil, Lord. Bind him. Remove him from this place, Lord. Remove unbelief and and fear, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Remove any spirit of stupor or sleep, Lord. Amen, Lord. Put us, Lord, in anticipation, Lord, of what you would show your people in the days that are coming. Thank you, Lord. We... We thank you, God. It is exciting, Lord. It's exciting to be taught by you, you who measured the heavens in your hands, you who spoke the world into existence, to to be taught and instructed by you, Lord. This is an incredible thing, Lord. We don't want to take it lightly, Lord, and so we yield to you, Lord. And we ask your wisdom and your word, Lord, to come forth. We give you glory. We give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 You know, in some ways, I feel like the way to do my topic is more illustrative than speaking it. And the illustrative way of doing it would almost be spending our entire hour of time um, tuning our hearts towards the Lord and believing that he can instruct us in all truth. Through his spirit. Now, it's not because I don't believe that he gave gifts to men in order for us to come into the knowledge of truth. I do believe in that. But I do believe that it is not sufficient for us to just reason about things in order to come into the kingdom of God. I believe it's got to be something quite more than that. And I would almost think an exercise would be 50 minutes of preparing our hearts for the last five minutes of a word that came from the Lord, and how it would change our life. I just see there's such a there's something about being His, you know, about belonging to Him. I mean, they write physics books to try to capture all the different properties that are governing the cosmos and you could fill libraries with the different laws and the fine tuning and precision that has taken place and all of this and yet it was just an afterthought and that God that we serve he's the one who gives wisdom liberally to the one who asks of it you know, and he gives without reproach what an amazing thing to belong to him for him to be the one instructing us and taking us by the hand and leading us into truth and giving us understanding into things. Is there anything like having a father like this? You know, and, and that's, that's what I think the church departed from. And that's the, that's the nature of the topic today. It's we were going somewhere in that book of Acts. Didn't you feel it? Didn't you feel it as Brother Ossie gave testimony of the early church? We had momentum, and we were going someplace. How did we get off? Where did we take the wrong turn, you know? If if you were to think about this momentum, there's nothing worse than someone who likes to to draw who can't draw, or likes to sing and can't sing, and I'm both, so, um, (laughs) but, um, But I I do think the illustrations will help. They just put things into a visual form. But let's just say that church, you know, let's say it was starting out on a path. And that path was to bring heaven and earth into complete unity. This is not hard to follow, right? The book of Revelation closes with this very thing. Now the kingdom of God is amongst men, right? So the whole story was moving towards these two things coming back together. And that makes sense because where did they come together to begin with, you know? Messiah, right? That was the meeting of heaven and earth, right? Right? It was in the incarnation, the divine spirit and humanity became one, right? And so the idea was now Messiah was the firstborn amongst what? Many, Many brethren. brethren. And there were going to be all of these now, all over the place, across the whole earth, right? But I, I, would, I would argue, you know, without needing a lot of persuasiveness that we do not feel to be accelerating towards this course, but instead we somehow fractured out into all of these different parts. And the church does not seem to be bringing the reality of God and his presence in a people onto this earth, but instead it seemed as though those two things got severed and all these things got pushed back out into the heavens and man took back over the earth boy a revolution began in messiah something that was going to change everything and it seemed as though that started to reverse so i'm told that in marksmanship that um you know i'm not that great of a shot that, that's the truth um I, if i'm going to shoot an elk or a deer it needs to be definitely within 400 yards um uh, the shakiness and all kinds of different issues, but it's just, it's not it. But you know, what's interesting is when you get a rifle to sight it in and you got a target at a hundred yards, you know, you feel like you're a great shot. <laughs> if it's a really good rifle, you know, you, you pull too hard on the tri- trigger and all this, but somehow you're still within a fairly tight grouping if it's a decent rifle, but you extend out to 200, 300, 400, things get exaggerated, right? And, and so now all of a sudden, if you don't pull with exactly the right pressure, and no, I don't know what it is, and I've never pulled it off myself, but there's a way of doing it that's exactly right. And if you do it, you can start hitting things out of a 1,000 yards. However, the allowance at 100 yards that could be a little pull of the trigger, and you still got a nice grouping, if you do that same behavior at 1,000 yards you're not even going to find where it, where it hit. You're going to be looking at a target and it's going to be so off, you won't even find where it hit. So what happened in the early, early days of the church in which we did not see this messianic kingdom across the whole earth, but we instead went into something that typically we refer to as the dark ages. We went into a time in which the church almost lost her complete identity. I mean, uh, I, I don't know this pope, but Brother Ossie knows church history fairly well and he could recount this story. But I do know one pope was like riding on a donkey, half naked, I mean, in, facing backwards. Um, you know, and that's not to, I, I'm not trying to mock these individuals, I'm saying, what happened? I mean, we're talking about James, the half-brother of Jesus, according to church history, was thrown from the Temple Mount, right? And then when he was not dead from this place, they came to beat him the rest of the way to, the, to death. And one man saw it and said that this was a righteous man and threw his arms around it and died getting beat as they beat James. I think that's how the account goes. Josephus, I believe, records that, that this half-brother of James was... Was, was such a righteous man that the blood of Jerusalem was sure to come upon, upon all of its inhabitants for having put to death such an incredible man of God. Now he was not a Christian, he did not see, but James was so known in Jerusalem for such an outstanding character, such a selflessness, such, an, such a, 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 a representation of his Lord that Josephus said, this whole town's in a lot of trouble over putting this one to death. How do we get from there to a pope who's riding half naked on a donkey backwards and the church is selling indulgences? I mean, how do we get to where Stephen's getting stoned and he's got to, you know, and, and he's saying, Father, forgive them, to men stomping with shields of a cross on it and a crusade to go and take the world by force to convert everyone to Christianity, sprinkle them with water or enter them into communion? We've got new members into the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, how do we, I mean, you, you just heard what Brother Ossie shared, right, from that last. Word. This was a move of God. This was something that could bring the Roman games to its knees. It could, it could topple an empire. And then we're a thousand yards out from the trigger and we can hardly recognize the church anymore. We got people that don't know if you should be sprinkled Um, As you've been baptized, if you should be baptized in an infant, what repentance is? Is it that serious? I mean, is it just feeling sorry for something? How about communion? You know, um, should it be done every single Sunday? You know, real wine, fake wine. I mean, red carpet. I won't go to a church without red carpet. And the divisions, the opinions, the separation, the fragmentation of the church is as, uh, as broad as it gets. And so what happened? You know, and I would say that a biblical pattern that is worth praying about and thinking about as you look at scripture is is that every time there is a undesirable marriage in the scriptures, then you have a child born of that marriage who is a thorn or a distortion for the people of God and their mission and purpose. Every time. So we can think of Lot. Lot had those two daughters who got him drunk with wine and then went and laid with them in his tent. And who were the two nations that were born out of that? Moab and Ammon. And these were constant thorns in the side of Israel. How about when Abraham decided that in the arm of the flesh he could fulfill the promises of God? Who was born? Ishmael. And is there an entire world religion in some ways that are is directly opposed to that of what has been taught by our Lord? Okay, the the Muslim faith. I really can't think of an example in which you don't see this. Jehoshaphat had a wrong association with King Ahab, who I believe was married to um, Jezebel, which I just was told from a brother was a Sidonian, another marriage that should not have happened. And anyways, they had a daughter, Okay, and Jehoshaphat's son then is given over to this daughter and everything that Jehoshaphat stood for, a new child is there and that child between two undesirable marriages brings about the fall of a kingdom yet again. You think that's a pattern? I, I, I really believe this is a very important pattern. So let, let me tell you about something that was said in the, in the, in the second century and it was... Tertullian said, what part has Athens to do with Jerusalem? The academy with the church, Christians with heretics. That's what he said. So what part? Now, I saw Brother Dan (laughs) uh, quote this, and this is from a man named Berger. And he probably doesn't like that I said his name that way. Um, it's probably said better. But indeed, one might say with some justice that the history of Christianity has been in essence the story of the marriage of Athens and Jerusalem. So Tertullian says, what part has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And church historians going back and looking at the course of christianity say this in truth it seems that the story of christianity is about the marriage of these two things together so what started out as early church fathers going what part would these two things have to do with one another we should keep them completely separate we are now at a place a thousand yards down from the pull of the trigger in which they would say the entire story of the church is the marriage of these two parts so what is that marriage? What does that look like? Can I give you a quote real quick from by the guy by the name of Richard Halverson? He said, In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became a business or an enterprise. When he said that in front of his classrooms, you know, funny enough, uh, one of the gals, it was, it was as quiet as can be. You could have heard a pin drop in the room. One of the gals in the classroom said, wait a second, um, the church is the body of Christ, isn't it? And he where is this going? You know, you you got students' minds are all over the place, you know. Um, Yes, it's the body, he goes. So a body that then is a business, isn't that what we call a prostitute? And he said that the whole room froze as if they had seen the progression and where they were at and what had taken place and it was all evident and clear all of a sudden. So let me ask you, do you think that Christianity going to Greece to become a philosophy has to do with it ending up as an enterprise these steps are not just sporadic the decline is not without rhyme or reason no we have an enemy that we wage war against who is more crafty and cunning than all the beasts of the earth He has a skill, he has a strategy, he has a plan in order to thwart God representing himself corporately in a people born of his spirit and seed. He does. The devil has a strategy to go about that. And I believe that strategy really started with this tension. I think that's where the divergence really happened. And so if we could look at Athens just briefly, what could we describe Athens as? What do you guys think of when you think of Athens? Mars Hill, Mars Hill. amen, Acts 17. And, and what did those men do all their life? You know, I mean, it seemed as though it describes pretty much their 8 to 5 job. And what, what was it, Brother Rossi? They sat around... They set around learning some new idea, okay? In fact, um, I would say that you could, you could really say its idea is separated from practice. I really do. I think that's an okay summary. It has its issues. It's just a, a, an, a, a broad category, but I don't think it's too far off. This is why the incarnation is the integration again of all things now made whole? There is no dissonance, there is no incongruency. Do you remember Jesus said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? What did he say was the leaven? Hypocrisy. What they say and what they live is different. There is dissonance between those two things. They say a lot of things here, they don't live those things out here. Athens, in many ways, is so contrary to Jerusalem because Athens says that nous, or the mind, the, the universal principle of rationality, is ultimate. And so it's thinking. It's thinking about ideas all day long and not worrying if those ideas are incongruent with what you actually live. In fact, it's, it's odd, but it actually believes in somehow that thinking about things all the time somehow will govern how you live. And in some way that's true, but not in the way that they would pursue it. Because the way they want to pursue it, funny enough, is This stair-step ascent to this pure reason. So man, essentially casting his gaze, is on an ascent up to pure reason. And pure reason would be defined as God. But what is convenient about God being pure reason? That when man masters it, he no longer needs who? Wow, that almost sounds like a second Thessalonians or first Thessalonians passage that talks about a man of lawlessness who will exalt himself into the place of God above every other so-called God. This is a man of lawlessness, a man that wants to throw off all constraints of relationship. It's a Psalm 2, right? Throw off the cords that, 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 that God has put upon us isn't that what Psalm 2 says? It hates the restraint that would come by way of relationship. It wants to throw those things off in its pursuit of Godhood. Now, there's a lot of issues with this because if pure reason... I wish I could draw a really big head, can I? Okay. If pure reason is it, you know, and that's casting everything down here, then we fragment truth... We fragment truth into things that we study or analyze. And now we need experts for each one of these. And then they cast down a level of information. And this whole body of people, this could be a head. Man's big old head, his pure reason he's ascended to that doesn't need God anymore, he defines everything then by what he studies objectively. This this is Greek thought, really, at its T. You have your base nature, which are your desires. Then you have morality. the need to decide between desires. And the only way for both of those things to be congruent with one another is for the nous, the mind. Pure reason to rule man. And that's the tripart nature that the Greeks thought. This is the apotheosis of man. This is man become God. Pure reason. And so... Fragmentation happens in this type of model. Everything gets broken into parts. But things that are supposed to be interconnected and in living are now dissected. They're now separated out. And that separation causes further fragmentation. And that fragmentation causes further fragmentation. Until, guess what? This pure reason that was supposed to liberate us from our desires has now made us like the beasts of the field, living according to our desires. It deceived us. It offered godhood, and all it gave us instead was to become like beasts of the field. Hmm. That's interesting. Is there any kind of biblical story that kind of feels like that same account? Something that would be archetypical, something that would kind of start out at the beginning Is there something like that that you all can think of? Maybe some kind of deceiver that was saying something about how you could become God. Did he say um, there's a good tree and then there's an evil tree and just keep eating of the good tree? Is that what he said? Why did he say that there was a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? That's different, isn't it? He didn't say there's a good tree in the garden and there's an evil tree in the garden. Don't eat of the evil tree, just eat of the good tree. He's saying that evil itself propagates it when you sever relationship from life and you exalt your mind as the ultimate authority of life. That itself produces the evil. That is the network of relationships that produces evil on the earth. Your carnal mind as the ultimate authority of this earth. It wasn't knowledge of good. It was knowledge of good and evil. You decide for yourself, independent of relationship with God. Now, a lot of people think crazy things. They think that, you know, um, that's when I was an atheist, but then when I was no longer an atheist, but believed through a lot of very, convincing arguments from lee strobel i read a a book you know um and and it looked like the resurrection really happened and i'm convinced of it and and because i've mentally assented to the resurrection i'm now a christian and so my mind no longer rules the day oh boy oh boy oh boy Um, that is not the case and that is not the repentance that gets you out of athens and into jerusalem that will not do. Your mental assent about some historical fact is not sufficient to bring about a transformation that would be so lasting and permanent that it could pass on to the next generation and an entire group of people could gather together and be the expression of God on this earth. It is not sufficient. But this is what people do. They read 1 Corinthians 2 and they say, you know, the natural mind can't understand the things that are spiritual, and that's the atheist. And when the atheist becomes someone who says he believes in Christianity, he's now the spiritual mind that can understand all things. That is not what he's saying. He's saying the mind that still sits is the authority. That mind cannot understand or discern the things of God. That's entirely different. And I will tell you the church is plagued with that unholy marriage of Athens and Jerusalem where people are walking around saying they're eating of the tree of life only because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had a new placard on it and it read tree of life. Do you see what I'm saying? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is still what you're eating of, but it has a sign that says the tree of life. Who put the sign up? Well, it was in red paint, and you should have noticed that slippery, slippery serpent painting it on the sign before he slithered away. But that was this marriage. That was this marriage. It was convince them that eating of the knowledge of good and evil is the tree of life. Tell them that reason is God. And then they'll ascend to godhood in their own authority, and they will lose every bit of the ingredients that would make them the fulfillment of promise. Oh, God, help us. And so what about Jerusalem? A city ordered by God? A city compacted together according to God's design? Right? That's interesting, isn't it? A city of peace? That that sounds like congruency. That sounds like wholeness. That sounds like everything is restored. Jerusalem. But what, what can we see about Jerusalem that will help us understand it? Jerusalem would be defined technically, most concisely by the temple, would it not? The worship of Yahweh, the fire of devotion to Yahweh was the heartbeat of all of Israel take Israel and make him into a man the heart of Israel is the temple of God where fires of devotion are burning in that temple and God's presence is there everything is ordered according to God's design this temple started out as a tent does anyone remember what that tent was made of badger skins what did badger skins have that was a unique quality for the pattern of this temple pretty translucent stuff badger skin right hold it up it's pretty much like looking through window glass wouldn't you say no okay what would badger skin what would you say is the defining mark about badger skin It's opaque. It does not allow any natural light at all inside of this temple. No natural light whatsoever inside this temple. Okay, So, so just follow with me. If you're out here, outside this temple, what do you walk by? You walk by natural light. You're out here and you see according to what? Natural light. If we took these lights out, the sun was darkened, and all of these things, everything would change altogether for us. Now, granted, you would have it imprinted, and I guess, yeah, it's fascinating, but the eye imprints on the, spinal cord, I was told by someone, it's just incredible. But, but you would see something if all the lights went off that would still give you an imprint of this room. But if you didn't know this room at all, it'd be very confusing without any light in here. You would stumble around. And so natural light is what gives you the impression that you can see. Amen? But here was this temple, this tabernacle, and it had the design of the earth to it. Right? Do you remember some of the elements that are inside of this temple? Does it have any kind of fruit or vines inside the temple? Yes. It does. And with it being so dark and the menorah lights that are up, if you were to first walk in and see the cast of those lights against a black backdrop, what would you almost see? The night sky and the starry hosts out against it, wouldn't you? And so here you have pomegranates and vines. You have these starry hosts up against the backdrop. You have these massive water basins of water. Do do you see what's going on? You, you, You have earth shrunk down inside of a tent, a garden. And so God forms an embassy of heaven, a plot of ground in which he is going to say this is where I dwell. And it has the imagery of the earth to it, and it cannot allow any natural light into it. But instead, guess what sits in it? The menorah sits in it. And how is the menorah lit? special way through the altar of God, the fire of God. And what fuels that menorah? Oil, not just any oil, oil of a young virgin olive that would not give you the most oil if you were to pick it young like that, but it would give you the purest oil you could extract so that no smoke would burn at all. A pure flame. And this light, this holy flame, It gives you understanding to all that God really made. And without it, you can't understand things as they actually are. You walk in creation and you don't see it the way you're supposed to see it. You walk and you see relationships and you don't see it the way that God designed them to be. All of human history and all of our different projects to solve our issue. If you were to track them all the way through the years, they are men under natural light trying to understand the things that God made. And without him, we can't perceive them the way they actually are. Jerusalem principally is about being born of God. So it says to have new eyes and new ears and to be able to wake up like a newborn baby and see things as if for the first time, now in relationship and dependence upon God. This place provides all the insights. It provides all the wholeness, all the healing that can make man one again with God. What's the center of that whole temple? Remember? A place called the Holy of Holies. And what was in that center place? The Ark of the Covenant. Doesn't Jeremiah say, no longer will you build this Ark of the Covenant or ever think about it again? Those days are past. Something new is going to happen. What was at that Ark of the Covenant? A place called at-one-ment, atonement. The meeting place of heaven and earth. Right there in that center, the most holy place, was that meeting place of heaven and earth. Do you remember what Jesus said when he walked this earth? Tear this temple down John two nineteen tear this temple down, and in three days' time i 'll raise up another and they did not yet understand that he was speaking concerning his body. Jesus becomes that place that at one meant that heaven and earth meeting. And he does it because he completely will not live from this place, but lives from every word that proceeds from his mouth. He is one because his will is completely done away with. This is interesting, his will I don't see these things exactly right. (laughs) You're like, oh no, why are we listening then? We should should go get this picnic. But um, human will, you could say, okay, um, human will, action, okay? And from this, you have this unholy trinity, I would say, and it's um, intellect, Intellect, And then we would say over here, it would be, it would be emotions. So wh- why am I describing it like that? Well, I don't know. It makes sense to me. So I guess I am describing it that way. And, and what I'm saying with this is, is that the intellect is not, is not, does not work the way that we think that it works. It is not as though the intellect gives its input to the human will. And then the human will acts according to this. So if we just cut off this supply line, then we're going to get pure actions all the time from a pure intellect. That's not how it works. The seat of our desire, the heart, our affections, are constantly informing our reason. This is why in Ephesians 4 he says that you put off this old man who is corrupt in his desires. He is, he is confused by deceitful desires. So desires are communicating something to him, and that is communicating something even to the desire. And a lot of manipulation goes on back and forth, and a lot of input comes up to here, and ultimately this, through fear of death, what Brother Ossie ministers on, ultimately is the decision house for all of your actions. Why am I stressing this? Because there's another model that's not like this. There's another model that fear does not rule the human will and cause it to be manipulated by its intellect and emotions. But there is a way in which relationship with God starts to make every other thing orbit in its right place. The Hebrews had a way of saying this that was very basic. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. It was whole-souled union healing inside of man in which he would no longer be governed in that weird system of manipulation, but he would be governed in an absolute new way. Can I show you one more that I think will help you? This is the way that we would be governed. A crucial relationship is what would fix this. We would be governed as those who receive the love of God and are accepted by him. As his. And we'd be those who then live for his pleasure, for his name, for his reputation or glory. When this healing comes into the heart, when the love of God has been shed abroad by the Holy Spirit, into our hearts, and we then are free in this way. Then all of a sudden, all of our decisions, all of our will, is now oriented towards something else, isn't it? What is it oriented towards? The will of another. The delight of someone that we perfectly love, and esteem, and admire. Don't you see when he says, I'm going to write this law upon your hearts, He's saying that the seat of your desire is going to be a desire to do all that is pleasing unto me. This is how the law is fulfilled in love. Because you don't need do's and don'ts. Your heart is set to do the will of the one who has bought you, who you are knit to, who you belong to. This is why you become a child. You become one who is born of God. His spirit inside of you causes you, one of the first things for you to do is to say, Abba, Father. You say, you're saying to Him, I belong to you. I belong to you. All other concerns are gone, all other fears are gone. Amen, there there was an absolute lie when I tried to live outside of this relationship. I was not on my way somewhere. I was on my way to death, and I come into agreement with that death now, and I laid down that old, corrupt life, and I want to be born again of you. And when you cry out to God from that way, and then God meets you by weaving by knitting your heart unto his by being born again of him that whole dysfunction starts to go away you're not here to calculate everything based upon how it what it might cost you or what might happen here but you are instead saying what is it that you desire what is it that would be most pleasing to you lord Amen. Everything is now flowing from this place of love. He says, Paul says, it's now faith working itself through love. This is all that matters now. Everything has been governed into this. It's the fulfillment, finally, of of that place, of at-one-ment. That place of the Ark of the Covenant where those tablets weren't broken. The law is not broken. Where that bread is shared, where we partake of his nature. Where his anointing becomes our food and drink. That place of at one minute, that place, it can happen in God's people, and it did. It happened at Pentecost. I said an unholy marriage is what set the church on its wrong trajectory. An unholy marriage between Athens and Jerusalem. I do not think it's of any small consequence that the first place of attack that the enemy had was at the incarnation, God's people understanding what happened when God came in the flesh. I believe that that a, a counterattack to what's happened in Jerusalem had been nurtured and developed in Athens. Do you understand what I'm saying? I believe that just as something incredible is happening in that upper room in which men are going to be born of God, and they're going to go out carrying his light and life and love within them. I believe at the exact same time, paralleling that, is a counterattack that will ultimately obscure that reality and lead God's people astray. And I believe that counterattack we see in the idea of who God is according to the Greeks, okay? Who God is according to the Greeks is he is pure reason, but that has some consequences. He is immutable. That means he cannot change. And I don't mean change as you guys would all think of it in the sense of meaning that he's never, his character is enduring and he will never violate it. This instead has to do with a philosophical absolute that they say he cannot change in any way. Second thing would be he's ineffable. This means he cannot be described or spoken about. Really though, the connection that was made with this is you can assign him no name. He can have no name. Now there's other things too, incommunicable and impassable. That's a big one. Pure reason, no emotions, Emotions would say loss, loss suggests imperfection, God's perfect, can't have any of that. So there's there's a lot of different things like that 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 are going on in the Greek view of God. Now why is that significant? Because in the second or third century, remember I'm saying there's a counter movement that's coming in to T-bone this early church and take her off course. And this is this Greek view of God that says that he has no name he cannot change. He can have no emotions. He's so transcendent. He's, no one you know, can experience his presence or anything like that. Well, people that are immersed in that school of thought are coming to the faith in some meaningful way. And they are becoming the leaders of the church within the third and fourth century. So they have this Greek view of God in many ways, but they're trying to figure out how it marries with what? The Scriptures. They're trying to figure out how it marries with the Scriptures. They've got a philosophical house, and it's got all these things defining it. That's its two-by-fours. That's its walls. That's its load-bearing structure. And now they need Scriptures to fit within this house. You know, in, in many places, this is called confirmation bias. You're, you're taking what you want to prove, and then you're data mining, looking for inputs or examples that can prove your case. Most people would consider the Cappadocia father, Gregory of Nyssa, to be one of the most influential figures in the formation or the formula, um, formulization of the Trinity, in, in the ontological Trinity, the view that there are three distinct persons and one being, the architect of that, one of the most significant architects of that. He looks at Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Do you know what Matthew twenty-eight nineteen says? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name. Not names, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you know what Gregory of Nyssa does with that text? That's his proof text to, to, to convince people that God has no name and cannot have a name. So let me ask you, if we've got men wrestling over scriptures, oh God, what was the revelation of this Logos and this word? And what have you said here about it? And what have you foretold about it here in the prophets? And what does this look like? Then would you not expect when they come to Matthew 28, 19 and read, go baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that they would then go to the book of Acts and see that the apostles, every time they baptize, baptize in the name of Jesus. Don't you think we would have saw these men going? How do these texts come together? Because everywhere in the book of Acts we see someone getting baptized. The the baptism is always in the name of Jesus and yet they told the disciples to go out and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Lord, what's the revelation? Give us understanding, God. We don't trust in our own mind and lean on our own understanding. God, we need to know from you. How does this work? What is this that has occurred? This incarnation. Who is it that died upon the cross? What is it that's happened here? God, please grant us understanding because you commanded your disciples to baptize in one name and then listed the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and then they went and baptized in one name and that name was the name of Jesus. What does that mean? Instead of seeing that, do you know what you find? Them saying, we've got our proof text why God is ineffable and cannot be named because we go to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and he never tells us what that name is. This is the father of the the final, you know, I I dot T cross formula of the Trinity. You want to know what the Encyclopedia Britannica says? I know you already made fun of them earlier, so... I was like, oh, he did that, and then I'm going to quote him, but that's all right. Uh, This is what it says. The definition of the Christian faith as contained in the creeds of the ecumenical synods of the early church indicate the unbiblical categories of neoplatonic philosophy were used in the formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, as well as Christology and the doctrine of man. An unholy marriage of Athens and Jerusalem. Encyclopaedia botanica says, based on what we can review of these early church creeds, it is clear to us they're not using scripture. They're heavily influenced by Neoplatonism. And that's why they're forming the doctrines the way that they are. Do you want to know what else, Chains? Athanasia creed comes out and says, this is eternal life to agree in these set of facts. Does that sound like Athens? Sure does to me. Agree in a set of facts. So here God has been plotting when he is going to bring the incarnation about on the earth in the fullness of times. And no sooner is he reconciling heaven and earth back into one is man is giving the boot to push all these things back out into the abstract and to carry back on in the dissonance of life. And so wranglings about words and parsing this and doing this and doing that starts to take over. And now you have all of these different terms trying to describe these things. What what about one other man who's a father um, that considered to be a father of, of this particular doctrine? Let's see how he starts off in his view of this. The God and Father who hold the universe together is superior to every being that exists. For he imparts to each one from his own existence that which each one is. The Son, being less than the Father, is superior to rational creatures alone, for he is second to the Father. The Holy Spirit is still less and dwells with saints alone. So that in this way, the power of the Father is greater than that of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and that of the Son is more than that Of the Holy Spirit. This is the start of the Trinitary formula. This is Origen, one of the most influential men in how these things came together. Most certainly, you could see Gregory of Nice and the Cappadocian fathers as being disciples of Origen. And this is where he starts. The Father is supreme, then you have this lesser deity, then you have this lesser deity. And you want to know what these councils ended up being? They ended up being fighting over Platonic or neoplatonic definitions of the Trinity and who was getting it right and who was getting it wrong. The church, to get back to what she was before it was T-boned, we have to get back to a place of such deep dependence and humility and a recognition of need for God in a childlike relationship that we can learn as God's people afresh and anew the scriptures that He has given us. These scriptures are incredible. I mean, and they're filled with incredible truth that would transform God's people. But they are spiritually discerned. And we cannot take that same mindset of that Greek thought and apply it to the scriptures and think that on the other side of it, we're going to get spiritual truth. We have to come with that same childlike dependence, and we have to realize that the church, just like Eve, was faced with a temptation. Eve was faced with a temptation to eat of the knowledge of good and evil. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, he says... Forbear with me for I have a divine jealousy over you a godly jealousy over you because I fear that you have been deceived you have been led astray by that wily serpent from the pure and sincere devotion to Christ I would say if the if if the New Testament old and new it focuses so much attention on this particular tension whether or not man is going to be in this humble place of dependence where every word that comes from God it becomes our bread and becomes our food. That, that is the tension of Scripture. You know, I feel it's the tension of a conference like this. The tension of a conference like this can be, oh, this is going to be interesting. I wonder what new things we might hear. I like going to conferences. They always tell us something that's a little fascinating. Fascinating. Is that who God's people were when they waited to be clothed with power from on high? And every word that fell from his mouth, not one of them fell to the ground because they came into a heart that was so eager to respond, so eager to receive. that did not stand above God to define them, but said, God, show us. Show us the way things truly are. Look at how a wise master builder you are, Lord. Show us your blueprints and design, Lord. Lead your people into truth, Lord. Let that true interpreter, the spirit of truth, interpret things to us that we might discern them in truth. You know, this is what the church lost. This is what allowed the church to attach itself to a, a state vehicle and march itself out in membership through the Holy Roman Empire. This is what led us into the Dark Ages. This is what led us into the uh, indulgences. This is what led us into the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, eventually hijacking Christianity altogether. This is what left to the church fragmented across thousands of denominations because the truth is, if I were to stand in an evangelical church and tell them that they must listen for the anointing of God and for His word coming forth or they don't have a chance of salvation, they would probably stone me. That's how far we have drifted from holy men who believe that this relationship of oneness with God was not optional. It was necessary to be his people and to be the church. Amen? Amen. Do you feel that you understand something here that God is showing you about how he wants to relate to you? You know, if anybody wants it, all these pages were just scriptures. I just went through every Old Testament passage I could think of. I went through every testimony that our Lord gave about the difference in how men approach him. And I went through every passage that the apostles gave that I could think of. Carter stayed up with me. I'd say a passage. He'd look it up and post it. And we just worked together until late last night. And I just, I was amazed. I was amazed at how the word of God was methodically addressing this the entire time. Don't be carried away by empty philosophies of men. Don't let it happen. Amen. Amen. There was a warning given to children, and children said, mm, and they fell into a ditch. But we're not going to do that. God's people are not going to do that anymore. We're going to be a people that approach him with reverence and who tremble at his word, Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.